and I'll just get right into it. So, uh, welcome to Attica Shrug, the podcast about politics and cultures in the South. Uh, things going on this week, and this week we have another special guest. We have uh, David Walsh with us. First, uh, let's do quick introductions. So, I'm Wes Cheek. I work in Ritz-Macon University at the Disaster Prevention of Urban Cultural Heritage Institute, whose name I can never remember in English or Japanese, but I'm moving to Liverpool, England in January. With me, as always, is Chad Watson. Howdy, y'all. I'm a recovering public school teacher, now getting my master's in urban planning for some at, reason. At a and at Texas At Texas A&M University. G- Giggum, is that right? Giggum, yeah. You guys beat, uh, beat um, a reputable football team last weekend. They did. I'm not sure which one, but one of the, some reputable football. One players. of the one of the best. In any case, and with us this week, a uh, special guest is uh, we've been trying to get him on for a while is David Walsh. Um, yeah, hi, I'm David Walsh. I'm a postdoc at uh, the University of Virginia. I'm really happy to be on the podcast. <clears throat> cool. Well, it's great to have you finally. And so um, I should say both both. I think I might have messed up our recording of the podcast because I was trying to watch the Braves game and. Um, record the podcast at the same time. I'm not sure if Chad is in the same situation, uh, but it's the the Braves have a chance to go back to the World Series for the first time since 1999 uh, today if they beat the dreaded Dodgers. So we're, we're I don't know if I can be in the podcast with Braves fans. I'm just I'm throwing that well, out Well, help us out here. Are you a, Do you have a, a baseball team that you support? Well, the Minnesota Twins. Uh, I'm, I'm from Minneapolis, uh, and so I, I have vivid memories. And okay. it, it, oh, it's Kent Herbeck. I was three years old at the time. The last time the Twins won the World Series, which was in 1991. Uh, and they had, unlike the Braves, they have not made a second appearance since. Yeah, um, but they, that was a legendary team. That was Kent Herbeck uh, yeah. and um, uh, Jack Morris. And, and then that was like the big Smoltz game for the Braves. I remember watching that series. And that was, you know, Kent Herbeck. I think that was when he said, "I'm, I'm neither a role model or an athlete. I'm a ball player." Isn't that, wasn't that his story? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 met, I met Kent Herbeck in the 2000s, and he definitely did not look like an athlete. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, baseball players, baseball players, you know, kind of not all of them, but a lot of baseball players start out not looking really like athletes, and then once their yeah. career is done, they continue down that road of not looking particularly athletic. I'm thinking now of Chubby Tom Glavin. We have a Chubby Tom Glavin now which really freaks yeah. me out a lot, uh, you know, and he was someone that was drafted in the NHL as well. So, and then we have, you know, kind of big tubby Greg Maddox now, which is weird. Um, well, how Barry Smith. Bonds. Yeah. Barry Bonds. We have a uh, jumbo size Chipper Jones, which is, which is, I guess that was, should be expected, but I still remember him as skinny Chipper Jones coming up you know, with the Braves. And now we have, uh, now we have, Really, really kind of uh, big Chipper Jones, Jumbo Chipper Jones, who also really hates the libs on Twitter. Uh, so that's exciting for everyone. So what, I mean, what athletes do remain um, remain uh, untarnished well, go physically and mentally uh, in your... Sumo guys go backwards because when sumo guys retire, they because they have to eat just like shitloads right. of uh, nabe to stay fat. And then a lot of them, once they retire, except for except for like Konishki, who's um, Hawaiian, he like had to have surgery to get thinner. But like a lot of them stop eating uh, like crazy people, and they slim down a lot. Soccer players age pretty well, right? Runners, runners, but runners, runners don't age run. well because you can run. Because actually, it's one of those sports you can get better at as you get older. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my my high school track coach always. He was like a he was if I remember correctly, he was like a contender um, for some of the big marathons in the U.S. And he was about thirty five at the time, and he was saying that, yeah, I mean, I've got at least ten more years where I can still win these things. And I'm like, wow, that's forty five and being a champion athlete. How many other sports can you say uh, that about? I don't know. I'm trying though. I feel uh, running those interesting. I feel like I'm a better runner now than I was 20 years ago, but it's because I was probably, I, you know, I was so bad. I've been so mm-hmm. bad consistently that anything can improve. Like I ran a, I ran an eight minute mile the other day and I freaked out. I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know you could run so fast an eight minute mile. Um, which is not, not, not that great. I've, uh, Chad knows, but David, you know, my, my wife is a former track athlete who now mm-hmm. shuns all exercise, but every time we sign up for a marathon, she doesn't practice and then smokes me and like finishes the finishes like smiling like, oh, that was a fun marathon. Well, I'm like dragging myself, dragging myself home. Track athletes are kind of different. Weird. Yeah, they're intense. They're yeah. Um, yeah, they're they're their own breed. This I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I would um, I was on the ski team in high school ski and team. I thought Does it actually exist. Oh yeah, yeah, Nordic skiing. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. I know, uh, freaky to me. Oh, we're getting yeah, that's freaky to me. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that in a moment. <laughs> yeah. But yes, yeah, so, so I was so I was never a good skier, um, but I don't think I gave myself enough credit for like not being as terrible as I thought I was because the guy who I would go practice with um, is my good friend growing up um, was just below Olympic class, right. Like he just missed out on the cut for the Olympic team. Um, and so, yeah, when I'm like trying to ski and I'm just, you know, busting my ass and not really going anywhere. And this guy is literally, um, uh, you know, could, could, could be like, I don't know, like moving between the trees in 1940 in Finland. Like, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's always strange to me. I mean, that comes up sometimes I've seen it on Twitter. I think maybe we've talked about it on here. I don't know, but when you're around people who are really, really like high level athletes, but then you, they also didn't make the cut to be like real high level athletes. You realize like how gigantic that gap is between normal human beings. I played on a uh, like soccer team full of foreign people uh, in, in Japan and we we're pretty like why I hadn't played soccer since like elementary school, but I could kind of hang in there and play defense and stuff. And then we have people who played in college in America and I could not believe how amazing they were. They far, 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 far beyond me, but they would explain then like, Oh yeah, I was only ever on the bench in college. I could never get off the bench. And like, they were never close to anywhere being in the pros, but I couldn't imagine like running that fast for so long or like being able to do all of these things. Or, you know, we had a guy who would just, every time there was a throw in, he would just get the ball and kick it into the goal from like wherever he was on, on the pitch. It like wasn't a thing for him. It was, yeah. Anyway, there's levels beyond that. It's very strange. Okay. Sorry. Just getting into other stuff. Um, so, so today, so we're going to talk about a few things, but David, I asked you like a long time ago about this because I thought this was really interesting, something that you said on Twitter and it was curious to me and maybe it's changed since you've been living in Charlottesville for the past year, year. So, yeah, it's been it's been a year and two months now. Okay, so you said on Twitter that you kind of understood the South, but you didn't grok the South. And if people aren't familiar with that, was that a nineteen sixties neo neologism? I think it was something? from Penline, right? Because I remember it. I remember okay. picking it up in Strangers in a Strange Land. Uh, right, that's where it comes from. Right, I think it was popularized. Yeah. Right, but it means to kind of like what to like grasp it, to like feel it in a real way, yeah. to like get it. 
Right. And, and so I thought that was interesting because I kind of feel like uh, I'm always trying to understand this. I feel like I, I grok it completely, <laughs> but I don't necessarily understand it all the time. So I wanted to kind of explore that a little bit uh, and, and with you and, and see like what exactly you mean and whether that's changed or not. And I shouldn't say we a lot of times on this show, we lead off with talking to people about asking them, like, what is the South or is the place that you're from the South? We had uh, David Griscom from Left Reckoning on last time, and he, we were asking him if Texas is the South and if Austin is, is part of that. No, and, um, you know, and I, I was saying to him, so I always say, like, especially as an urban studies person, I'm not like I don't think there's a right answer. Like, I think there's we're never going to have like this. Well, here's the boundary. But like the conversation's interesting to me about what is and what isn't. So I think in your ways also, too, you're kind of working around some boundaries with this of of, of trying to understand the South. So what what is it that you will kind of give us the outlines of that? What do you not grok or do or did not not grok about the South? Well, you know, let me let me take a step back and say that um, when I first came, so, so my first sort of experience with the South um, was not really in Charlottesville necessarily, but it was when I first moved to D.C. And that's yeah. not, you know, we, we can have a conversation about whether or not that's the South or whatever, but it is South of the Mason-Dixon. Mm. That was the first place I moved to um, after I left Minnesota. Right. Um, and when I, you know, I, I, I would go to points further South, uh, while I was living there, um, you know, down to Richmond, a little bit down to North Carolina. Um, and what I realized is, is that I, I had more culture shock going down South, uh, than I would like going up to Canada. You know, I don't know if you've spent a whole lot of time in Canada, but I mean, my, uh, I, I was in Montreal a few years ago and, um, I felt very, obviously they've got their own thing going on there, but, but I, I sort of intuitively kind of understood what was going on in my opinion, anyway, mm -hmm. Quebecois might, might disagree because it struck me that, you know, Montreal was basically just like Minneapolis, but everybody spoke French, right? I mean, it's the same, yeah. it's the same kind of, um, you know, everybody's really into hockey. Um, it's cold and that definitely dominates the, um, both the geography and, and quite a bit of the culture there. Um, and, and I, I felt like that's true broadly across the, um, uh, the upper Midwest and into, you know, sort of lower Canada. So Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, especially Chicago, um, uh, and the lower peninsula in Canada. So like, like there was that familiarity to me, but, um, when I started spending significant amounts of time down south, when I moved down here, I mean, there's just these, weird things these little bits of sort of culture shock that that I, I, i'll give you a concrete example i think this might have actually been what prompted the i don't really grok the south uh -huh. comment it was what about six months ago i don't precisely remember what i can't was. remember i yeah i remember yeah. talking about it but if i remember correctly the specific catalyst for this uh -huh. was my parents came down here uh -huh. um uh, to visit it was everybody was vaccinated so it was the first time we were all able to see each other and not socially distance um, uh, in person back in, in May's before Delta. Um, and so, uh, I don't know how familiar either one of you are with like the geography of central VA in Charlottesville. Um, uh, I went to VCU for a year. So I used to go. Hang oh, out. Well, there you go. Yeah, then you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we went to the Valley, we did skyline drive, we did all this stuff. Uh -huh. Um, and we ended up, uh, uh, after, and, you know, my parents were just 
flabbergasted by being up in the mountains because they live in Minnesota and they're from uh, Illinois. So they're just that that's not in their experience. Right. Um, it was, and, uh, you know, so we were enjoying that. And then we and then we stop at a, um, a brewery um, on the way back to Charlottesville. And that's a very yeah, I mean, breweries are everywhere in the United States now. There's right. there's nothing atypical about that. You know, but we're sitting there um, in Crozet, Virginia, uh, having a beer at like three o'clock in the afternoon um, on a Thursday. And uh, there are these four guys who sit down next to us. We're the only people, the only other people there. Um, and they're having a Bible study group. <laughs> at the brewery. Yeah, at the brewery. And like one or of the guys. Baptist. That's weird. OK, anyway. Yeah. 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 Well, apparently at the brewery, they do uh, church services on Sundays. So I don't know okay. what, what the affiliation there is. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe they're Catholic. I mean, that's certainly. Right. That, sounds, that sounds more Catholic to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I grok that. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, we're sitting there and and it's it's a um, uh, it's these four guys who are talking and one of them. Um, is talking about how uh, he feels like the left is an existential threat to his culture and way of life. That's almost a verbatim quote. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, especially studying what I study, which is like right-wing political cultures, like the, right. this is not especially remarkable to me. What was really interesting to me, though, um, and my, my parents commented on this too, um, was that it was a, it was a, a multiracial group. It was uh, two white guys, a black guy, and I believe a Hispanic guy who were um, who were having this conversation. Um, and you know, and, and it, I mean, it was the it, it was a, it was one of the white guys who was saying this uh, specifically the, the the threat to the culture stuff. He was actually being pressed by some of his um, uh, some of his buddies on it. Um, oh, interesting, but, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it struck me. I mean, this is it, it's a. You know, it, 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 it's a piece of um, sort of Southern political culture, which, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, not unaware of from just like being a historian and knowing that there's right, right. that. You know. But it's generally not the kind of, ex well, one, it's not the kind of exchange that happens um, in, uh, in, or at least neighborhood I grew up in Minnesota, which was not like a, you know, totally like white collar middle-class neighborhood it was a blue collar neighborhood. Um, but there wasn't quite the same sort of, I'm going to put this, there's not the same Jesus -y component to it. Like most people are Catholic um, right. and it's part of the culture, but it's not, you know, people don't brag about having a personal relationship with Jesus in the way that this guy was doing. Um, but if you had and, a personal relationship with Jesus, wouldn't you brag about it? I mean, that's, that's fair. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, my wife is Jewish, so there's, we're, not, we're not bragging about that in this household. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was it, it was interesting to me, and 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 I, I I remember thinking at the time that you know I mean this is one of these, and there, there have been other instances of, instances of this, but this is one of those instances instances excuse me where like. I, I, I realized that I didn't quite get on a sort of intuitive, on a visceral level, uh -huh. uh, what the South is all about. Um, and 
Yeah. That's an interesting example because it's got a lot of components of it. It's definitely got the Jesus-y part and being the very open with uh, your relationship with, 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 with the Lord and Savior. <laughs> Can I have a conversation with you about Jesus? And I, right. I, you know, I talk about this a lot on here. About, we used to go out witnessing on Tuesday nights, so I'm familiar with, with, with doing this uh, when I was a kid. Not recently, not for like 40 years. But, um, but like the interracial part, like not so surprising to me mm-hmm. that they're doing it at a brewery, maybe a little surprising, but there's, yeah. you're getting a lot of like the funky churches now, like the young people's funky churches. Well, these like, guys were young. They were, they were in their fifties. They were in their fifties. Oh, okay. And were they drinking beer? Mm. Oh yeah. They were drinking beer. Huh. Mm. So this might've been like pretty evangelical, but like one well, personal group, like they, they're probably like, like a men's, like a, like a dad's or a men's. Yeah. Like, yeah. I definitely group. got strong dad energy. In fact, one of the guys was talking about yeah. his kids a lot. So yeah. Yeah. It sounds probably like one of those groups. Cause like Baptist, like I know when the preacher used to come over to visit, my mom would have to like hide the beer. Uh, we're, we're, we're Baptist. And, and uh, so drinking was like something people did, but you're, weren't supposed to. I always give, I think I've said on here before, the Willie Nelson quote about how he used to sing in the choir on Sunday mornings and sing in the honky tonk on Saturday nights. And an interviewer asked him, um, like, how did you like put those two things together where you're at a honky tonk on Saturday nights and then singing in a church on Sundays? He's like, well, it's the same crowd. We just all pretended we hadn't seen each other. (laughs) Yeah, it's like there's, um, there's like that version of that joke about you, like when you go fishing, you always invite your two Baptist friends with you. So none, like neither of them will take your beer. Like, like, you know, something. Yeah. I mean, which uh, you guys are Baptist too, right? Yeah. I grew up bad. I grew up, uh, like, were they, were, were you supposed to be drinking? I can't remember. No, there was, right. yeah, like there was no, yeah. Like, so drinking was bad though. My grandfather, I mean, my grand, my, yeah, my grand. Uh, well, actually, that's that's not the grandfather that was Baptist. The my on my dad's side, my dad's side was actually the moonshiner. Um, so I don't like he would, but on my mom's side, they were Baptists. But my grandfather actually never went to church. Like my grandfather never went to church, and he drank beer and on occasion, but not a lot. And also, they had the. Uh, my grandparents also did the uh, you know whiskey as medicine. You know, like oh, we got a little cough syrup. And it was, yeah. So I don't know. They still use people still use the term foot washing Baptist. We used to call it foot washing Baptist. Like we were Baptist and like pretty serious Baptist, but we weren't foot washing Baptist. Is that do people still use that term? Is that something mm. you're familiar with? I don't know like if I've washing, heard that. Foot washing Baptist were the people who were like like really mad that Amy Grant recorded a pop record, or like they probably wouldn't even like Amy Grant's Christian stuff. Like foot washing Baptist, um, like didn't drink, didn't dance didn't want to participate in secular society in the least. And so even amongst Baptists, there were like these gradients. Well, it was like in, in the Baptist church I went to was like, um, yeah, like drinking was actually all the preachers, all the preachers in my Baptist, I think were recovering alcoholics. And that was like part of their, (laughs) that was like, that was part of their repertoire was like talking about how they, you know, used to be alcohol, but they came to God. And so it was like, you had to be an alcoholic like you either you had to be an alcoholic and then get called to preach or you had to be like you were like 11 and like called, you know, got called to like you were either a child preacher or you were like a drunk until you were like 40 and called to preach. Um, yeah. Yeah. My church, you had to be an Auburn football fan so that your sermon could <laughs> could you could do multiple hour long sermons around Auburn versus Alabama. Like and I'm not even joking. We did have a neighbor who was called to preach as a child, but he would stand in the front yard and try to juggle hatchets. 
That was his thing. <laughs> he just learned to juggle hatchets, and then he got called to preach. And I don't. I I hope it worked out for him. I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean that story to me is like yeah, most of it's pretty familiar. The the brewery setting's a little bit updated, but it's like you know yeah, I think people are uh, pretty open about that stuff. And I think the multiracial thing is interesting to me because um, that is one thing that I find people get surprised about is that there is a kind of multiracial conservatism and maybe not political conservatism necessarily, although it is a lot of times. Uh, that you experience as well. And, and, you know, I was, um, I haven't gone fully into all the stories about it, but I was home this March because my dad had been sick and I went to, to help him out and he lives by himself and his across the street neighbor from Chattanooga, a retired union um, plumber, welder, one of those two uh, is great, comes over to help him out. And their third friend who's always hanging out is an older retired Air Force guy who's also black. Mm -hmm. And what unifies all of them is their hatred for liberals and their love for, you know, Fox News and conservatism. And they just sit around together and are racist constantly. Even the, even the older black guy who goes to like a, um, I think like a non-denominational, uh, African-American church, um, and he's just, you know, cranky old conservative guy. And they get together and talk about how much they hate Oprah Winfrey and about how, you know, the kids today and actually, you know, black people are more racist than white people and how everything's gone downhill. And they and they really love each other and they're really supportive of each other and they're great friends. And I'm so happy that my dad, who lives by himself, has these friends who look after them, after him. But whenever I'm around them, um, I'm like torn between the fact that they're such great people and such horrible people at the same time. And I think a lot of times uh, people, you know, this, this exists everywhere, of course, but from outside the South are sometimes surprised about like how these racial divides don't work out like we always just say they do demographically. Like, uh, well, if we just had, you know, more more non-white voters, then people wouldn't vote conservative. And it's like, haha, that's not exactly right. It doesn't really work that way. And in fact, you know, you probably experience this in what you're looking at. A lot of a lot of issues too are um, as as uh, people who are defined now as Hispanic grow more politically conservative, start redefining themselves as possibly, you know, as whiter or more religious or start being associated with other other demographics. So, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting story. It doesn't seem that like people just starting to pray together. It doesn't seem like a, it doesn't seem unfamiliar to me at all or starting to like people you don't know sitting down and talking about Jesus. That's something uh, pretty normal. I would guess where I'm from, Chad. I'm guessing you too. Uh, very much. That's <laughs> very much. Uh... I see. We used to do that to each other in high school, like where we would um, try to freak each other out by acting like we're witnessing. Like, uh, I can see there's something. You put your hand in your shoulder. I see there's something missing in your eye. You're a good person, <laughs> but I see in your eyes that something's kind of missing. And we see how far you could do it until the other person got really creeped out. Um, so. Yeah, we would always joke. We we would always joke in high school that the best way, whenever you're on a long trip, you gotta go to Iowa or Chicago or something. Uh, the best way to open that trip, especially if it's with somebody you don't know, um, is you've got to wait about a half hour, so you're committed to the trip, uh, and then you uh-huh. turn to Andrew in the car with and say, "Have you heard the good news about our Lord and Savior Jesus?" <laughs> yeah. So, well, what I will say is this: that that I mean, the, the overt religiosity, mm-hmm. which is which is everywhere in the South. Um, right is it's not as if there's not overt religiosity in, in the upper Midwest or the North more generally. Um, uh, it's there, um, but it's not hegemonic. 
um, in, in quite the same way. Like uh, one of my good friends from high school, which see what he's doing these days. Um, he's a good guy, but I'm just, sorry, I'm going down memory lane now. That's, that's fine. Um, but one of my good friends from high school, um, uh, was, um, I, I guess he must've been a Baptist because wait, was he a Baptist or was he a Lutheran? I forget. See, I have no uh, idea what a Lutheran is. That's that's the real yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this, what a Lutheran well, is. Well, the pertinent point is, is that his dad worked for Billy Graham's like life insurance company, and Billy Graham had some sort of relationship <laughs> yeah, yeah. with um, the Northwestern Bible College, which is in Minneapolis. Um, I think it was a Baptist church um, that he was a member of, but um, and you know, and you know, he was very overtly religious, but that was very much the exception. And also, you know, we were all in public high school too, so it was unusual. Right. To have somebody be that outspokenly, you know, uh, religious um, in in that in that context, so it was there, but it, but it's it's not sort of the default assumption, and that's um, that's what strikes me as, as as sort of different about the South, um, where it's remarkable if you're not an evangelical Christian broadly defined. It's re- particularly remarkable if you're not a Protestant. Uh, well, yeah, that's I think that's a big one, especially if you're a Jew. It's yeah. like, oh, what's this? Yeah, outside of some areas, because that's an interesting thing for me, because, you know, I'm from the Gulf Coast. I'm from Florida, but, oh, yeah, okay. like, yeah. but, but I'm from the Panhandle. And so if you but if you go over to New Orleans, you know, there's a huge tradition of, of uh, Jewish people there. Turo Synagogue is one of the Catholic. oldest synagogues um, in America. And of course, you get to Louisiana and all of a sudden everybody's Catholic. Um, yeah. But where I grew up, yeah, I was not familiar. I remember, uh, so Chad and I went to the same summer camp, uh, and I remember, like, the first Jewish people I can remember meeting were there because summer camp's kind of um, a Jewish thing as well as a a very white thing in America. And, like, I remember having to ask, like, okay, so what, I asked our friend Josh Elliott. I was like, so what is that exactly? Like, what? (laughs) They're like, like, well, basically we think uh, Jesus was a pretty good guy, but he wasn't, like, the son of God. I was like, oh. Oh, that's that's what it means. Okay, I get that, I guess. Right. And like Catholic, um, you know, my stepdad's Catholic. But uh, until that, I had no no real conception. Like, I think one thing, especially in the Northeast, maybe in the Midwest, like um, there's a lot of like like uh, the the prominent people in the community are Catholic or like Catholic is kind of something that's widely understood. Mm-hmm. Right. And like where I'm from on the panhandle, like I don't have a, like Catholic something you see in movies. Right. It's like, a, oh, that big church that was in the movie. That's like Catholic. That's something that exists outside of of here but you know that all changes you go yeah you drive into louisiana and then everything you know we have parishes right well well, and there there are pockets of this uh in other parts of the south so my um so so it's interesting so my my uh uh, wife um so she's jewish but she's a jewish convert so she converted to judaism when she was in her early 20s and um her uh, uh extended family at least on her mom's side they're from kentucky they're from uh outside of um Louisville, so bourbon country in Kentucky, um, and they're all Catholic. Um, and I was, and you know, we went there um, the summer before the pandemic, so in 2019, at a sort of you know the family reunion, and um, the town they're from outside of uh, Louisville, it's incredibly Catholic. And um, what I didn't realize until I went there, um, but it makes intuitive sense when you think about it is that um, most of the bourbon distillers are also Catholics. Like Jim Beam, um, his original name was Johannes Baum. He was a German Catholic who was in Maryland. And then, they, you know, along with a bunch of other German Catholics, not just Germans, but along with a bunch of other Catholics, 
they uh, did this sort of inland migration to uh, Kentucky in the 1790s uh, because of church state issues in Maryland. Um, and it would make sense that these would be the people, unlike, you know, the, uh, unlike some of the other Protestant denominations where right. they would actually have this brewing and distillation tradition. That um, makes sense. I, why did I not know that? That makes total sense. I, I, I mean, I didn't know this either until I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, why, why, is there, why is there a state park named after a guy named Bernheim in the middle of Kentucky? Um, and it turns out he's a big, uh, a big bourbon distiller. Well, why are all these Germans distilling bourbon? Well, that's the reason, apparently. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get incongruities like that throughout. Like, you know, if you get south of Austin out into the hill country, then you get places oh, where yeah. people still speak German at home. Right. Like it's a, it's, you know, and that's where some of the best food in the country is, by the way, because you got the German and the Mexican food sort of melding together to make Tex-Mex. Uh, I, right, I love yeah. that. Yeah, why not? Yes. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. In, in, you know, Louisiana, it's like Wisconsin with spice. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, think of Lu- yeah, Louisiana, too. You have, you know, you have uh, French cooking um, paired with like Gulf Coast uh, uh, ingredients, right? And then filtered over from African tradition. So you end up getting really incredibly good food. So no, no, no coincidence there. So yeah, I haven't spent much time in the Midwest, but I kind of feel the reverse thing when I when I have been in my limit. I've been to like Chicago once, and that's it. I do feel something different, but I feel like I haven't been there long enough to understand um, to understand like what it is that that is different. I know one thing that was really surprising to me when I so I went to so I'm from Florida. I went to VCU for a year, and then I ended up graduating from Alabama. So I kind of lived broadly across the South all of my life until I came to Japan. And my first year on the JET program, one of my good friends was from Wisconsin and she's was uh, Asian American. And she told me she was the only like non-white person in her high school. And I found that like really hard to believe. I was like that, how does it, cause my high school was, um, uh, you know, majority white, but like a lot of Vietnamese people whose parents have been refugees and were resettled uh, a lot of, uh, black people, because I live between two Air Force bases. And so, you know, and it's the South. And then, um, you know, pretty, like, I don't want to say diverse, like not like the best picture of diversity, but pretty diverse for an American high school. And so it was kind of, I couldn't understand how someone could be the only Asian person in their high school. And so it seems to me like that must be such a radically different experience. And, you know, I think we all know that kind of the reputation of the South as being racist, like, which of course it is, but, uh, like, and then, then that forgives the rest of the Midwest. Yeah. Right, right, right. Is, is kind of, um, there's a lot of texture to that too, because like, I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to go to a school where it wasn't all, all white people. And so it's kind of hard for me to envision that. And I wonder if that's kind of what I'm feeling about the Midwest or I don't know. Yeah, well, can I ask a question? Where sure. in Wisconsin uh, was your uh, friend? You know, from? I don't know. That's, that's a good question. I've forgotten, um, but I'm guessing it was not a large metropolitan area, right? Right, because this is a pertinent point that yeah. um, throughout the Midwest, and I can speak with the most authority about the Twin Cities in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, but uh, throughout the urban Midwest, you know, there is a. Um, I don't know if I want to say surprising, but there is a great deal of uh, diversity. It's, it is, I don't want to put this. So in the twin cities, for example, um, 
and I'll, I'll speak specifically about Minneapolis, although I grew up in St. Paul, but you can, you know, make the broader case to either one. Um, you know, these are cities that are distinctive among uh, Midwestern cities because um, they remained, even after white flight um, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, majority white. Uh, uh, I believe Minneapolis is still like 64, 65% white, uh, which is pretty significant for a city uh, its size in the Midwest. Right. Um, that being said, though, I mean, there is a, I, I certainly was not, uh, you know, the, uh, at my high school um, in uh, St. Paul, and I think the demographics have shifted uh, a little bit because there's been, um, there's a whole history of, of um, resegregation of the uh, St. Paul public schools in the past 10, 15 years. But at the time when I was a high school student, this is in the uh, 2005, 2006, um, my high school was roughly 30% white, 30% black, 30% Southeast Asian, mostly Hmong and Laotian. Um, and about 10% uh, Hispanic. Um, and that wasn't atypical um, for high schools in, in the Twin Cities at the time, but it was atypical uh, compared to like outstate Minnesota or outstate Wisconsin. So in Wausau, in St. Cloud, in Duluth, in the smaller towns and cities across the Midwest, you would still have it be relatively overwhelmingly white. But that even that has changed in the past uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, I mean, there's a longer history of this, but I mean, Austin, Minnesota, for example, has a large um, uh, Hispanic population now. Uh, one of the big reasons why is because Austin is the home of Hormel, um, and it's where they right. make Spain. So there's a huge meatpacking industry there. So it right. works in the world. This is the case across Wisconsin. Um, the most interesting and perceptive of the like uh, uh, just awful genre of um, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, going to the Midwest and going to the diners and talking to people there. Right. Um, the best of those stories are when they go to the meatpacking plants and they start talking to people who are like from all over the world and have all right. sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, it, it but, but I will say in general that once you get outside of the cities in the Midwest, it is much less diverse um, than it is in the South. Um and it's not, I, I think that's one of the reasons why, um, I mean, I did this drive the last time, maybe about three years ago, but I thought that I saw more Confederate flags in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan than I did in, than I have in North Carolina or yeah. most of yeah. outside the Shenandoah Valley. This has been a recurring theme on here that this is a pretty common experience. Like we've heard this about upstate New York. Oh, we've yeah. We've heard this about Pennsylvania. We've heard this about Ohio. Um, and I experienced this when I drove. I drove from New Orleans to Salt Lake City a few years ago. And I did not see a Confederate flag until I hit the New Mexico border. <laughs> and then I started seeing Confederate flags in Utah and New Mexico. And it's kind of like, well, and it, you know, it's not like, you know, I can go home to Florida and see a Confederate flag in the parking lot at like the grocery store. It's not like I, you know, it's not like you can't find them. I was just surprised, like coincidentally driving on these roads I was driving. I did not see them until I got out West. And I think it's pretty clear 
well, researching what you research, you probably know the Confederate flag does not <laughs> represent being in the South anymore. It represents a no. political alignment, right? And so we, we have a, you know, a friend of the show who is in New, upstate New York and said that's the most Confederate flag she'd ever seen was in upstate New York. So, well, you know, I, my personal theory to that as well is that, um, I mean, I mean, there is that dimension of it, obviously. There's the, I, mean, I don't want to go into the whole Dixification thesis about uh, American political culture because I have qualms with it. But there is the argument that, um, uh, you know, the, the rural political culture in particular has been southernized, for one thing, right. term, or Dixified or whatever, um, over the past 40, 50 years. Um, but what I also think is true is that um, in North Carolina, in Georgia, in, I think to a somewhat lesser extent, but in Virginia, um, you have in the rural part, I mean, you have the black belt in many of these states. Yeah. Um, you know, you drive through certain parts of Alabama or Mississippi, you're not going to see the Confederate flag for pretty obvious reasons. Right. Um, whereas if you're in the upper peninsula of Michigan, um, and that's one of those places where pretty much everybody is, you know. Yeah, you can get away with it. You can get yeah, away yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it, it's, there's that dimension of it. I mean, I was, um, I was driving up to D.C. from Charlottesville. Um, oh, God, it was about a month ago. And I, I was driving, actually, because um, the train was five hours late. Um, and I finally just said, I, you know what, it's, it's a two and a half hour train ride. I, I'm not going to. I'm just going to drive because it's about the same uh, distance to drive or the same time. I've done time. that drive. I know that drive. it's a nice little drive. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you take up. Uh, uh, I, I didn't go up 29. I went up uh, Route 20, I think, um, through Orange and over to. I was about to say, is that the one where you go through the Civil War battlefield? But any direction you drive between Charlotte, yeah, you go through Chancellorville, you go through Fredericksburg. Yeah, that's um, right. That's right. Manassas, no. No, no, no. That's the other one because sixty six, I sixty six. That okay. goes through. Got it, got it, got it. So yeah, so you can either go up and over through Manassas, or you can go mm-hmm. like west. We're not west, east and north um, through uh, Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg. Yes. Okay. So I was doing the, I was doing the latter drive. So I was going through uh, uh, Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. This is actually before that uh, the story I'm going to tell. So I was driving along, um, and it's and it's on what's called like the journey through Hollow Ground. <laughs> um. It's it's the it's the road that goes through Monticello and uh, uh, James Madison. What is it, Montpellier? Uh, James Madison's estate is his right. plantation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean that's another thing that we you know can, can talk about um, the, the distinctions between the Midwest and at least the Upper South and that sort of weird sense of history, but also yeah, I don't know. I was going to get into that next. So, yeah, you're good saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go there in a moment. We, and we can definitely talk about Native American genocide in the Midwest because that's. Um, but uh, uh, the point I was going to make is, is that I was, I, or the, you know, the, the story I was going to tell is I was driving through uh, just south of Orange, Virginia, and um, I saw this, uh, uh, it was like an antique store that was selling a bunch of Confederate uh, memorabilia. Um, uh, and there were a bunch of guys out in front of me. I was like, okay, you know, um, and I was driving on a little bit further along the road. Um, and when I was, um, on the side of the road, there was this a guy, there were two pickup trucks that were parked on the side of the road. And there were two guys just screaming at each other. Uh, it was a white guy and a black guy and the white guy, um, I, I his, presumably the white guy's truck, um, was just covered in Confederate memorabilia. It was just plastered in it. Um, and, um, 
you know, his, his, his counterpart um, uh, was you know, not. But I don't know what the argument was about. I was just driving along the side of the road. I can guess. Um, but, you know, the point is, is that, you know, this is the South is a space broadly where people who have had dramatically different experiences with American history live side by side. And that's not necessarily not necessarily the case in the rural Midwest. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's a good point with it. And I think that like um, I think the people who do live side by side and it kind of get that dynamic, right? And I think maybe from outside, sometimes people don't. And I don't want people to mistake what I don't think anyone who listens to this mistakes what I'm saying. But there's a lot of times that people, you know, throughout history has been used like people don't understand us down here. We get along if it weren't for outside interference. I don't mean that. Yeah, yeah I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. But I mean that like uh, that that people, like you said, people with radically different experiences. Um, live next to each other and that makes things uh uh interesting is the most bland way i could put it right it makes for and, and you know anywhere uh I, I used to teach have to teach deviant behavior and it's interesting like one of the questions i ask in that course is like why do you see all these people who seem to be in these kind of um uh, disadvantaged and stressed situations seem to also be producing all of this this culture that, that we enjoy and love right and i don't know what the answer to that is but it seems to be a condition and i think that's that's in the south too right like you have this really um kind of situation under stress right you have these very unequal unequal people unequal situations right on top of each other and it it produces it produces things for better for better and for worse well i wanted to kind of ask you about this now so you've been living in in charlottesville for a year right and so for me i would say Amongst within what we broadly think of as the South, there's a lot of diversity in in situations too of what is the South. So for me, Charlottesville's kind of up north, right? <laughs> Charlottesville's up. I got, I'd have to drive all day to get to Charlottesville from from Destin, Florida, right? And I, Chad, I think probably for you too, like Virginia yes. is kind of Virginia is like up north, right? But like I lived in Virginia for a while, and my you know my uncle and my cousins all live in Virginia, and. Um, Virginia is kind of a weird kind of the South. It's kind of like, because Virginia, I think outside of Texas, no state has as much reverence for itself as Virginia does. Like, Virginia loves itself. <laughs> like, it really does. Like, it thinks it's a really special place. And not that it's not. It's got, like, a long history and a very particular history. And within Virginia, Charlottesville really, really loves itself, like, a whole lot, right? Like, or a certain sector of Charlottesville does. Um, and, you know, kind of the pinnacle of that is this cult of Thomas Jefferson, Um Right. And so Virginia is kind of this weird aristocratic kind of South to me, like where one of the things that I enjoy about the South, even when it stresses me out, is how kind of broadly democratic the South is. Uh, you know, God, this is so complicated to talk about it that way. And I understand all the problems with it. But like, you know, the South in some ways is casual or freewheeling. But in Virginia, it's a very kind of um, aristocratic notion of the South, a very patrician uh notion of the south that is very um kind of odd to me and chad i know for you probably like for east tennessee like virginia is kind of weird too like because you're close to it but it's yeah. different right like, i grew up like my house was like 10 minutes away i could drive like i could drive 10 minutes north and i would be if i drove if i went to my driveway and turned left and drove for like 10 minutes i would be in uh, virginia but it was like southwest virginia you know, and it was like there was nothing there. There was like a stockyard, you know, like we would a lot of times we would go buy, you know, I'd go with my dad to buy cattle at the 
at the stock bar or sell cattle at the stockyard in Ewing, Virginia, you know, mm-hmm. which was a whole very like Southwest Virginia is a lot different than Charlottesville or even, you know, getting closer to DC, you know, now that, um, and so it is like, yeah, like, like for, it is such a weird, like, so, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a strange state. Like, you have, like, Appalachian Virginia, right? And then you have Southern Virginia, which is very similar to North Carolina, you know, a lot of a lot of peanut farmers and agriculture and stuff. And then, of course, as you know, like, the closer you get to D.C., you might as well be in not any international city, but you have a broad, like, a, a managerial class of people who live there, right, who are kind of... No, I, 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 I think it's actually fair to say it's, it's the same as sort of any international city because I, I when I uh, moved to D.C., um, with my with my wife, um, what we were, I I, I uh, she moved down there first. Uh, it was a, like staggered moving because we had different schedules. Um, and I was driving back from Minnesota to D.C. for the first time um, for our move, and um, it was weird because you know I was coming in through West Virginia, um, and you know it's a multi day drive from Minnesota, so I was I was uh, woke up in. Uh, uh, I think it was Huntington, West Virginia, and driving straight through to DC. And I had to pick up my uh, my then fiance from work out in uh, Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Uh, and we got there early. And Tyson's is this place. It was it was built up in the '90s. It used to be a cornfield. Now it's this big sort of you know hub of, of a bunch of yeah. big uh, companies. And I was killing time in the mall that they have out there, and. I, I was I was just flabbergasted. I'd never been there before, but you know, after ever, having driven through West Virginia all day to go to a mall where the least ritzy store is a Brooks Brothers, yeah, yeah. It felt like I was in the airport in like fucking Qatar or something. So it, there is that's what that- it feels like. Yeah, Northern Virginia is an airport. It's an international yeah. airport. You can yeah. be at any airport in the world. That's what it feels yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a weird, it's a weird vibe. And even like you know, I lived in Richmond for a year, and I very much like Richmond. And Richmond very much feels like the South. And you drive an hour north, and it's like this is a different, this is a different world, you know. And it's reflected. It's also, in, hmm? Go I was gonna say it's also distinctive from uh, the northeastern cities that are that are uh, further along the uh, northeast corridor. I mean, D.C. is nothing like Baltimore. It's nothing like Philadelphia. Right. It's yeah. really not too much like Chicago. Um, it's its own weird little outpost of, um, I mean, international capital in the way that like Singapore is, it's, it's, that's, that's DC. Yeah. And in Baltimore in some ways feels more like a Southern city when you're there than, and there's the, you know, deep historical reasons for that too, is very much uh, implicated in the slave trade, uh, very much so. But, you know, Charlottesville has always been interesting to me because I, I had a friend, one of my good friends from high school went to UVA and then I was at VCU and I would go over and hang out with him. And he was in one of the frats at UVA, but they were the cool punk rock frat. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, were they I remember like, that. They back in the t- <laughs> well, they they I remember there was uh, one guy in the frat who was named Reggie Jackson and they had him in the frat because he was his name was Reggie Jackson and they thought that was oh, hilarious. Yeah. And I remember they would like offer to get knife fights with the other frats, like <laughs> sit on the front porch, like come over here and we'll cut you. And then, but I remember like then the big, like, I like I said, yeah, they were a good, they were fun. I used to, you know, hang out there. I can't remember which frat they were, but, um, but then I think things have changed a little bit now, but then like Thomas Jefferson was so revered, like one of the big things they would do that was um, 
that was like controversial, that was really pushing the boundaries was they would yell like, fuck TJ from the balcony of their frat. Right. And that was like, oh, my God, you're going to get in big trouble for that. Uh, and I feel like maybe over the last few years, the kind of cult of Thomas Jefferson has simmered a little bit. But then, you know, I know my 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 I have people in my family who went to UVA who are still really upset over the monuments and really upset that like um, Thomas Jefferson's losing some kind of reputation or that, you know, maybe consistently uh, raping people you enslaved is not a romantic story at all uh things like that so i don't know i haven't been in charlotte in a while though like what is kind of the vibe there now is is tj still kind of um on the literal and metaphorical pedestal well it's interesting you say by the way how large is your uh listening audience uh, that's a good question we try not to think about that or talk about that um because if we think about it there's no way that we'll actually make time to do this on fridays uh if we think too hard about it um i would say that my mom is definitely listening Okay. Go. Well, I, I mean, the only reason I ask is because um, the story, I, the story I'm going to say is 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 about uh, the, the the class I'm teaching right now, and I always am a little bit leery about speaking about it publicly. So, um, oh, I just okay. Well, to... I think you can probably get away with it. I would say that probably nobody else at UVA is listening to this. Okay. Then, uh, yeah, right, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, sorry to put you on the spot there. Um, oh, I don't but... care. I've embraced it. I've embraced it at this point. So I had the interesting experience. So I teach a class um, here at UVA on uh, the title is uh, Hate and Annie, uh, Fascism, Anti-Fascism, and the Global Far Right. Hate and Annie, uh, the term I stole from George Lincoln Rockwell. Uh, that was the title of his, um, in, in about 1964, he had the brilliant idea of um, creating his own folk uh, music record label specifically for hate music. Yeah. Um, and uh, because he wanted to stick it to Pete Seeger, um, he decided to call it Hate Nanny instead of Hoot Nanny um, yeah. and sort of reclaim folk music for the Aryan race. Um, didn't work too well. They released one record whose uh, the, the titles of which I'm not going to repeat because they're just racial slurs. Um, but yeah, um, Rockwell, of course, was based in Arlington for most of his uh, career as a Nazi. So the Virginia connection there. He actually ran for governor of Virginia in 1965, um, was incredibly unsuccessful at it. Um, his yeah, well, the thing is, is that he had the he thought that he was going to get all of the segregationist vote because this is the uh, year after the bird machine collapsed. Right. Uh, but it turns out that actively embracing the swastika in 1965 is not even even for uh, Southern segregationist voters. It's not necessarily going to be a winning political platform. So, yeah, you're still uh, close enough to World War Two then that like old racists would still be like, hey, a swastika. That's messed up. Hey, yeah, no, now. I mean, that's about the moment where he tries to rebrand himself, not just as a Nazi, but just as, as like the uh, head of the white power movement, because that's right. less bad than being a Nazi in the context of 1966. Or as my and dad he, says about them, those people tried to ruin the rebel flag. I mean, you know, there, there's the infamous clip of the mayor of Selma, Alabama, uh, slipping. Uh, uh, he's at a pre- he's doing a press conference where he's blaming. Uh, the 65 um, protests on outside agitators, and he blames George Lincoln Rockwell and Martin Luther King in the same breath, although he slips and he calls Martin Luther King a racial slur. Uh, um, yes, I know. Yes, 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 he did. But yeah, no, the fact that he's talking about the Nazi party beforehand um, is, is sort of a clue as to how, you know, they're, they're, they're strategically utilized by Southern segregationists and also by Absolutely. the American Anyway, um, but the thing about Thomas Jefferson 
so it's interesting. So, so uh, I'm on the quarter system. So my uh, new quarter began um, this uh, past week. Um, and uh, the first class, um, my students, and I don't know, I don't know politically what they were, where they were. They might, it might've been pressure coming from the left. It might've been pressure coming from the right. But um, my perception was they were trying to bait me into saying something about Thomas Jefferson, specifically about the sort of controversy about Jefferson um, uh, at UVA and there's a statue of him from in front of the rotunda. Um, I know Rich Lowry, the editor in chief of the National Review is coming to campus next week um, to defend yeah. Thomas Jefferson's uh, legacy along with some congressman from Texas. Um, so I would say this, that there is very much the sort of old school alumni who are very much dedicated and wedded to a, you know, particular genteel understanding of UVA um, and of Jefferson as the sort of hypothesis of this. It's not, for me, it, it's not actually all that unfamiliar. Um, you know, I, I did, I went to grad school at Princeton um, and in addition to UVA and Princeton also being sort of cultural snob factories, um, there is that legacy of Woodrow Wilson in Princeton mm, yeah. um, with very, I mean, he's also, he, he's, he's from uh, Stanton, so he's not, or Staunton. Oh, yeah. Staunton. Stanton? You say Stanton? It's spelled Staunton. You say it's Stanton, right? I've been there. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, but I mean, he's from the Valley, so he's not too far away. Um, so that, you know, it's not unfamiliar for me. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, I went to Tulane, so yeah, it's not unfamiliar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, all of which is to say that I mean, there, there, there still is this. One of my colleagues who um, uh, did his grad school work at UVA um, uh, explained it to me like this: that that UVA is this interesting school where it's um, a combination of a Southern Ivy. You know, has the sort of same cultural cultural prestige factors like the Ivy League schools. Yeah. It's also a flagship. I mean, you know, it's it's the state flagship, so there's that dimension of it. Although it doesn't quite have the same uh, resonance with most people in the state that uh, Virginia Tech does. Um, and then it's also a finishing school um, for the sort of local elites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that I think colors a lot of the perception and debates about Thomas Jefferson. Um, it's always interesting for me as as uh, like the uh, as a postdoc um, who doesn't really know uh, too much about the internal politics of this to be fielding questions um, from tourists who are coming either from out, other parts of Virginia or other parts of the South, right. generally not from the North, um, who you know, come to campus and they want to know, you know, where's the Thomas Jefferson statue or like, you know, have, have, uh, have the libs tried to knock down the Thomas Jefferson statue yet? That's it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there was also, I, I should mention this as well. I was in my car earlier today and, um, I was at the light, um, uh, one of the stoplights near my house and somebody screams out to me, uh, a guy in a pickup truck next to me. Fuck Joe Biden. Fuck Joe Biden. Um, Is that you in general? Or do you have a big Joe Biden sticker on your car? <laughs> I do. I forgot because I was I, I, so I, I was in, in the primary in, in twenty nineteen. I was a I was a Warren guy, and then I realized she had no chance, and was she rubbed me? She did some things that I didn't agree with. So I, I uh, 
switched to Bernie and I have a Bernie bumper sticker on my car. Um, and I left it up there for uh, about eight months after uh, Super Tuesday. And then sort of grudgingly, I put a Biden sticker on my car as a sort of like an attempt to like, oh, you know, let's let's have a broad sort right. of anti-family front. Um, and then I forgot about it. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, his pickup definitely had a Punisher uh, decal on it. So that was, uh, well, they're trying to push this. Uh, I was going to talk about UVA, but just very briefly, they're, they're trying to push this whole like yelling fuck Joe Biden thing and try to make it a national trend. I was right wondering now. about this. I, I, I've seen a little bit of the graffiti on campus. I don't know who's putting it up. Yeah, so I, you know, some like fans. Was it an A and M game, Chad? You know, or is, is some ACC yeah. game? It was A&M Well, game? they did it at A and A and M. I don't know if that's where it started, but that was there was a big. It was, oh yeah, like two or three, like maybe one of their first home games. Yeah, there was like fucking Joe Biden that they were. But, and like the new, like Fox tried to run with it. Like, look, the tide is turning. And it's like, you don't have to like go very far to get like people to chant right wing slogans at SEC football games. That's like not <laughs> a high bar at all. And no. especially not to single it out. I went to Alabama, so I can't really talk. But at A&M, like which is known as kind of a reactionary conservative, not the whole school, but like the sports fan base. Am I wrong in saying this, Chad? Or you no, know? you're very right. You're it's very kind right. Of a, you know, it's kind of a, I would say like, there's ridiculous things about Alabama, but A&M's known for a specific kind of like kind of reactionary conservative politics, right? Farmers so, fight. Yeah. And so it's not it's not that hard to get a fuck Joe Biden chant going. But they've tried to make this where, oh, see what's so, happening. So you're telling me that the job I applied for at Alabama A&M, that's probably not going to happen for me. At Alabama A&M or Texas A&M? Uh, oh wait, no, no, this is at Alabama A&M. I'm sorry, I, I thought you were. Talking oh no, you Alabama A&M. No, for sure. that's uh, no. you shouldn't have. I don't think people are chanting "fuck Joe Biden" at Alabama A&M. <laughs> yeah. sure. I don't think that's going to happen no. at Alabama A&M. I think you're fine there. That's a great location too. Uh, you're up in North Alabama. You can uh, go to all the Jason Isbell shows you want there. Um, <laughs> but about uh, UVA, like it's interesting. So my my master's degree was in historical preservation, right? So it, that's a weird field where it embraces like kind of very kind of left-wing and very kind of right-wing sensibilities. And yeah. Thomas Jefferson, a lot of this centers around, like he's a crux in this because he's such a huge figure in the history of American architecture and all of this, because he kind of set the pattern book for what America was going to look like. and was very specific about it and very clear about it. And so the course that I taught at Tulane went through the history of architecture from like cave paintings and then up until Thomas Jefferson. That was like the one semester course. And we cut off there. And I always have to like tell the students like, you know, I this course is not long enough for us to embrace the legacy of Thomas Jefferson in a real way. Like we can't it's too complex. But the fact that like we say it is complex is kind of also um, a certain privilege of academia and of being white in academia, right? Because this is a guy who designed this magnificent by any standard building, Monticello. He designed it to hide the fact that he enslaved people on it, but also have it revolve around that fact, right? Like this is, you can't detach him from this in any way. This is a person who's now, you know, we know that he, well, I don't know how you describe a, a sexual relationship with someone you enslaved as anything other than rape, right? And so he, oh, yeah. he conceived children out of this uh, relationship with someone he enslaved, right? And so there's no, there's no real way around this, but, but he's still such a weird touchstone where, as you know, you can study conservative politics. They're like, how can someone say something bad about Thomas Jefferson? So then the, the alternative to that is how do, you, how do you talk about Thomas Jefferson without saying that? What is the genius of Monticello if it's not the fact that it is a center for for the labor of enslaved people, right? Like that's what it did. 
and that's part of the the design. Like you can't explain the building otherwise, and you can't explain Jefferson's uh, legacy otherwise. And I I hate that I'm blanking on the name. Who wrote the Hemings of uh, Monticello? She's um, the law. Professor. Oh, and Edward Reed. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. I love that book. And one of the things she points out that um, was really to me something to think about was about how the legal code of America at that time had to be changed because so many children were being conceived out of uh, slave masters raping the people they enslaved that you had to actually legally codify like who was white, right? <laughs> like because of this. And it's like, you know, well then Jefferson's legacy is that that's his legacy, right? There's no way to divorce it from that. You can say like the dumbwaiter he designed at Monticello was a brilliant innovation or that, you know, he's he did <laughs> go to Europe you know, he went to Europe and he was uh, he made it all the way to Nimes and saw the, the, the temple there and thought this is how we should design American buildings. But then, as I explained to my classes, there's a reason that plantations look like Roman, like, you know, Greco-Roman art, look like classical architecture. Right. There's a reason that plantations, courthouses and colleges all look the same. Right. In America. And that's Jefferson. That's Jefferson. And he. Um, did that very deliberately, right? And so uh, that's my 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 Jefferson spiel. And I think like he's one of those uh, American figures. Like there's there's no way around him. You can't not talk about Jefferson, but you also can't not talk about like slavery uh, and and rape and Jefferson, which is horrifying to people. I think to confront. Anyway, that's my Jefferson spiel. No, no, I mean, I agree with you. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I mean, the thing that I told my class, and I, I punted on it, quite frankly, I was very explicit. I'm, I'm saying this because I do not want to uh, uh, come down on, on, on this one side or another, but, but that the um, taking down the Lee and uh, Jackson statues here in Charlottesville, and people died to make that happen yeah. uh, in this town. Yeah. But in a sense, that was the easy decision. Um, right. Because they were traitors to the United States. Um, and those monuments were constructed explicitly in the late 19th century as monuments to uh, white supremacy. Um, the Jefferson stuff is the harder stuff. I mean, this is what in his b b both incredibly idiotic, but also just bafflingly uh, almost like a Chauncey Gardner-esque insightful way that, that he had sometimes that Donald Trump was getting at when he said, oh, well, after uh, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, they're going to come for uh, Washington and Jefferson next. Well, yeah. in a sense, yes. Yeah. Because that, I, I, I mean, that that is the underlying issue here. I mean, it was right. the point with the 1619 Project. Um, and... You know, the, the act of committing treason against the federal government makes the case a lot easier than saying, well, this is actually baked into the American Republic from its very beginning. There is no way around it. Any sort of memorialization of, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's certainly the Virginia uh, aristocracy um, in the uh, late 18th century, so Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, et cetera, et cetera, cannot escape this fact. Right. Um, then what do you do with that? Um, and... You know, that's. Yeah, that's I was really involved in the monument stuff in New Orleans and, you know, take him down. Nola, who did spearheaded this this effort to get rid of, of Lee Circle, um, to get rid of various Confederate statues around town. 
right? Like they have a list of other statues that very accurately point out their implication in white supremacy, but they're way harder targets because like you said, you all of a sudden hit a wall where the argument isn't they were traitors who fought for the Confederacy, which is an easy argument to get across to a lot of people, right? You say that, that that works on people. When it starts to be like, well, they were a federal judge who upheld uh, segregation. That's harder. And then, you know, when it's uh, Tulane, right, which is which, you know, Paul Tulane gave money saying explicitly, this is I'm founding an uh, institution to educate white people. Right. Like he says that. Right. Explicitly. Um, And then a lot of the buildings on campus are named after Richardson Memorial, which I the building I worked in for years is named after a guy who made all of his money in in the slave trade or in uh, plantations. Right. So when you start going for that stuff, it's a harder argument to make to people. Well, these people were traitors and it's hard because they're not traitors. They were absolutely uh, (laughs) involved in the formation of America. Right. In the running of America. And then you start to get really uncomfortable when you tell people that. I mean, I guess this goes beyond the South, but I mean, I guess we just got to get past like all this American exceptionalism that the people that founded, you know, that our founding fathers were not much like our real fathers were not, you know, <laughs> we're not, you know, did a lot of good things, but also did a lot of horrible things, yeah. you know, and my we mostly were doing the horrible things. Yeah, my, uh, well, we'll, yeah. No, your dad's a nice guy. Come on. My dad was very good. We're, I have other parents too, but the, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we got to wrap up in a minute. But yeah, that's that's I know it's a whole thing that, that that has to be untangled, and it's really hard to to untangle. And you know, to bring this back to talking about the South, that's one reason we talk on here about these issues because I think the South is really at the forefront of these issues and of trying to address these issues. And I think when you go up, up north, I'm doing air quotes here. When you go up north and start saying, yeah, we're taking your statues too, uh, then people say, well, but wait, why? We're not traitors <laughs> to the nation. And it's like, yeah, that's the hard part. You're you're not. And then that's the hard thing to, to contemplate, right? There's a lot, there's a lot more to think about there. Well, well actually, if I, if I can very, very yeah. briefly jump yeah, in there. Please. Yeah. I, I mean, in Minneapolis, uh, one of the big naming controversies of the past 10 years was over Lake Calhoun. Um, in, and is it that Calhoun? I'm guessing it's that. Oh, Calhoun. It's that Calhoun. It is oh, very wow. much that. He was the secretary of war when the lake was named. It's, it's the largest lake um, in the, it, what's called the chain of lakes um, on the west side of Minneapolis. Uh, I hear so, you guys got a lot of those up there, a lot of lakes. Oh, <laughs> less than Wisconsin, weirdly enough. But, right. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, uh, the argument uh, that ended up winning the day, and I'm, I'm dramatically simplifying it, but was that uh, uh, it, it not only was, was Calhoun not a good person, um, but also this is, it's, it's sort of like Mount McKinley Denali, right? That this is, a, you know, this was a body of water that had been named by the Lakota people in the area that had just been renamed in the 1850s right. um, by uh, white settlers. So it's now Betskama. Um, so it's gone back to the Lakota name is the official name. of the name. Um, And, you know, that's, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting because I think that there is a perception and I, I was having this conversation with, um, uh, with with a friend of mine who teaches uh, medieval studies at a, at, a, at a college here in Virginia, who was in uh, Charlottesville uh, recently, that we had a drink together. Um, that because west of the, or not west, east of the Appalachians, um, the genocide of Native peoples um, in America was almost total. There is not the same... Uh, 
there is not the same push for recognition of the um, original inhabitants of the land um, that there is uh, in, I mean, at least in my experience, in the upper Midwest, um, where you do have, and, and at the same time, the strategic silences in Minnesota, specific, I remember going to uh, Texas once, um, and I went to the Texas History Museum in Austin, um, and I was just struck by just how dramatic and exciting they made Texas history seem. It's like, oh, you know, fighting the Mexicans and, and you know, the Civil War and all this stuff. And like, like oh, oil. This, yeah, this is where history happened. And I remember thinking it was a real contrast um, from uh, the Minnesota Historical Society, which just sort of presented Minnesota history as like the Scandinavians came and they farmed and life was good. Um, with some, and Garrison like, Keillor showed up. Yeah, with some exceptions to labor strike. I'm not even going to that. But, um, and, and granted, this was like 25 years ago, so it has changed in, in, in terms of its, its framing at that museum. Um, but uh, uh, Native history was completely erased. Um, and that's the strategic silence that you'll find throughout the Midwest. Um, it's not about slavery. Um, it's about genocide, or it's about Native genocide um, there. Um, but it's... it's uh, uh, and, and there were other erasures that happened in the Northeast. Um, so, it, yeah, it, but, but, but given that you have people like Calhoun who things are named after across the country, um, there's no way to escape uh, the Southern legacy even there. Um, but in Minnesota, it makes it easier because you can say, well, why is something named after Calhoun? Uh, right, yeah. Um, like one of the most despicable people in American history, probably. Yeah, an awful person. Awful person. <laughs> Personally and professionally. I'm glad he's dead. I mean, he'd be dead anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing he's gone. All right. Well, that's uh, the the show for today. David Walsh, thanks for uh, joining us and talking. Uh, yeah, today thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, yeah it was um, fantastic. And yeah, uh, we'll see everybody next week. Bye. Bye.